0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Our speaker this evening, Dr. Robert Royal, is the founder and president of the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C., and editor-in-chief of the website The Catholic Thing. Dr. Royal holds a Ph.D. in comparative literature from the Catholic University of America and has taught at Catholic University as well as at Brown University and Rhode Island College. His books include The Catholic Martyrs of the 20th Century, The Pope's Army, and The God That Did Not Fail. He has published in numerous scholarly journals, including First Things and National Review. Please join me in welcoming for the first time to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Robert Royal. I was worried about tonight. I, I said to Deacon Sabatino when he called me several months ago, is anybody going to show up in the middle of the summer, you know, to read a book about the devil? <laughs> but you know, the devil is a good draw, I guess. So. <laughs> no, more seriously, let me express my admiration for what Deacon Sabatino is doing and for the entire work of this Institute of Catholic Culture, because Um, As I'm sure you you know very well, we as Catholics are living in a culture right now that desperately needs to hear many things, and among those many things it needs to hear are the truths and the values that Catholics hold. So study groups like this, I I think, are are vital, and when uh, the deacon called me, I was quite delighted to, to come here because not only are groups like this, I believe, essential for the contemporary and future life of the church. But I think even the United States, even our dear United States of America, needs this sort of initiative for it to survive and to flourish, even to survive. Because I think things look quite bad in a variety of ways, and um, I think Screwtape and some of his lesser devils have had some uh, unfortunate successes in our country. But what we're doing here is really that thing that the best part of Vatican II wanted us as lay people, and I see there are also clerics in the audience, I don't want to exclude you, but I think primarily as lay people to do, and that is become informed about the faith, become engaged in the world, and as the letter to Diognetus says, Christians should be to the world as the soul is to the body. And you cannot be a soul unless you know about what the faith is, and you pray, and you live where that faith is. So I commend you all, not just because you came out on a Sunday in the middle of the summer. One of the great pleasures of reading C.S. Lewis, as I'm sure many of you know here, is that in C.S. Lewis, the religious and the intellectual tasks are joined in a superb way. and. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that lots of you know about Lewis, so I'm not going to belabor his uh, his life and his significance, but just for those who don't know a lot about him. C.S. Lewis was born in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. He was baptized into the Church of Ireland, the Episcopal Church of Ireland, although he lost his faith uh, as a young man. He died on November 22, 1963, which is to say the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated here in the United States. Um, He studied uh, medieval and renaissance literature at Oxford and then later taught medieval and renaissance (coughs) literature there and a bit later than that, uh, toward the end of his life, at Cambridge. As an Oxford don, before he became a Christian, he started to make friends with a remarkable group of people. You probably know most of them by name, or maybe you've read some of them. Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, among several others, and perhaps most importantly of all, J.R.R. R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, who, it, it, perhaps the most successful literary work of the 20th century, to, to the uh, pleasure of many like us and to the sorrow of people who don't like the, the values that that work conveys. It was Tolkien who converted C.S. Lewis to Christianity. Tolkien and Lewis used to talk about their great love, literature. And it was Tolkien who finally convinced Lewis, who always was attracted by the Christian myth, as he put it, that the Christian myth was a true myth, a myth breathed through silver, he said. So Lewis came into the church, into the Anglican church. He did not quite make it all the way to Roman Catholicism, but many of his uh, pages speak quite highly of the Catholic Church, and he knows a lot about Catholicism. He studied Dante, he studied the Middle Ages, he understands Catholicism, and it is not his goal, even as a Northern Irishman, to attack Roman Catholicism or any other form of Christianity. One of his great books, and a book that I recommend to each and every person in this room tonight, is called Mere Christianity. What he tries to do there is to lay out in a non um, uh, polemical way, what are the basic truths that all Christians, at least you know, back in the 40s, all Christians actually believe more or less the same things uh, about the essentials. What it is that is mere Christianity? What, it, what does it mean to be a Christian? I believe that that book, along with several others on prayer and on miracles and on suffering, really make him one of the greatest Christian apologists may be slightly lower than G.K. Chesterton, but the two of them are pretty close. These are the two greatest Christian apologists in any language in the 20th century. It's one of the reasons why he, we read him. There's another great book of his called The Abolition of Man. And uh, uh, Deacon Sabatino, I think that might be a book, another book for another time for, uh, for this group. The Abolition of Man is an absolutely wonderful book um, examination of the kinds of things that have even become more evident since Lewis's day, but the kinds of things in modern culture that deny what a human being at his or her most profound really is. And at, in, there's an appendix to the abolition of man which tries to show, by looking into different cultures, what Lewis called the Tao, after the Chinese, what we would call in Catholicism natural law the kind of natural principles that are built into creation that every culture has recognized, and sadly, in, in the most advanced cultures, particularly in the West, we've now lost. That's, so that's a book not to miss, and I, I mean it when I say this is one to come back for in the middle of a summer or any other time as well. Which brings us to the screw tape Letters. As I'm sure many of you are aware, Lewis was not only a learned professor of literature at Oxford and then Cambridge, but he was also a gifted literary writer himself. Um, I'm sure many of you have read his Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, some of you have probably read his Space Trilogy, which is an astonishing bit of what you might call Christian science fiction. And all of these works share a, a, a couple of common characteristics. They're, they're brilliantly written, first of all. It's just a a, a pleasure to read an an insightful page after page after page. But what they do is they combine that aesthetic beauty with a profound grasp of Christianity. And the screw tape letters, which were published in 1941, which is to say, and we have to keep this in mind as we start to go through the letters. 1941, the, the blitz is going on in London, and that means that there's the possibility of sudden death everywhere, and not only in London, in other parts of the world as well. And so there's a kind of urgency to this book, which is in itself a kind of spiritual direction for that moment, and obviously for moments after that. Because in a way, the possibility of death is always with us, and and the the challenges of temptation and and the the, uh, need for virtue are also always with us. So this book is a collection of 31 fictional letters from a, 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 an upper tempter, a director of a department in hell, if, if, you, if you want to call it that. And his name is Screwtape. He's a senior devil. And he's writing these 31 letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who's a young, you know, Brash uh, tempter who 's got a, a young man in England who he 's supposed to tempt to the ultimate demise of his soul, so um, the basic concept is is utterly brilliant because what happens in the course of these letters is that is that screw tape will tell his nephew about what human beings are like and what and what the devils call the enemy. You know, they, everything is upside down in hell, so the enemy is God, right? And our father below is Lucifer. And there's this, this utterly hilarious inversion of, of all the different values and, and what we're used to hearing in, in uh, books of spiritual direction. But the brilliance, the brilliance of Lewis in doing this, is that lots of people who would not have accepted a direct presentation of what more traditionally might be regarded as a spiritual um, advice book, right? See a devil telling another devil how not to let that stuff happen. You know, don't let him, you know, don't let him encounter Christians, don't let him start to think all these different things that, that could go wrong and that could lead him to escape our, our father below's house. So, the, the cleverness of this is that it inverts everything, and it also provides a kind of a humorous look in the mirror. You know, how would it look like from the other side if a, if you were looking as a devil trying to at- attack somebody in the world, living in the world, whose soul is at stake? Now, Lewis not only provides acute insights along the way as, as he works on this, uh, and it, it, it's not. It's not so much theology that he does as sort of everyday practical advice, although we're going to talk about some of the larger theological questions as well. But there's also a great deal of humor here. And Lewis went out of his way when he wrote this book to cite two great Christians, Martin Luther and Thomas More. The two epigraphs at the beginning of the book are from those two figures. And I think he deliberately Because, as I mentioned earlier, Lewis is a man who seeks to advance Christianity more generally, not engage in polemics between Catholics and Protestants. So he he cites Luther, who said, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. And then he turns, as he turns to Thomas More. And St. Thomas More said, the devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. Now, humor is a great thing to be able to produce in a literary literary text because it keeps people interested, right? And it keeps us all amused. But this also has a spiritual importance as we come to learn, as we we read more and more into these letters. Lewis's devils are these very serious, self-important Um, beings. And one of the reasons why they deeply resent the the, the spirit that they call the enemy is that he has sullied the pure spirituality of angels and God himself by creating the world and by putting into it beings like ourselves who are partly material bodies and partly spirits. And and contrary to what you might expect, then, these devils are not necessarily on the side of the material world. They're only interested in the material world insofar as it enables them to turn souls away from God because they don't like creation. They think creation is somehow déclassé. It's not in keeping with the seriousness of being a pure spirit. There's a a deep sense here that runs through almost all of Lewis's work. And if you've read anything by him, you'll you'll see that he really believes in the goodness of created things. Real goods. Created pleasures are real pleasures. And no matter how much any of us need to practice asceticism to to make sure we we keep ourselves in check and to get ourselves closer to God, God's original intention in creating us is to be here in this world, and authentic pleasures, good cheer, and humor are part of the original plan. We're meant to be here. We are not meant to flee here the way some Manichaeans and Gnostics believe we ought to be, try to be pure spirits. That's not what God intended for human beings. We have bodies, and even after the resurrection of the body, we will have glorified bodies again. The body plays an important role in Lewis as to do uh, authentic, uh, desired-by-God pleasures. I'm sure all of you are familiar with this brief poem of Hilaire Bellox. Do you, do you know this poem of Bellox called The Catholic Sun? Wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I always find it so. Benedicamus domino. <laughs> Now, we'll find something of this same touch in Lewis, but with his own sort of personal approach to why it is that the goods of the earth are to be celebrated. Perhaps not by drinking that third or fourth, or. Well, I won't. You, you understand. So, in the preface to the screw tape letters, the author, we assume must be Lewis says he has no intention of explaining how these letters came into my possession. But he warns that there are two ways of going wrong about the devil. One is to entirely ignore him and not believe that he exists. But the, and the other is to not take him too seriously. To just assume that, you know, this is sort of the, the, the modern problem, of course, isn't it? That, that uh, we think that in spite of all the evidence, people killing children in Norway, and it's it's all somehow just, you know, we we made mistakes. Or or as we say in Washington, mistakes were made. No one makes mistakes. Mistakes were made somehow. Um, What he means by this, about taking the devil too seriously or not taking him seriously enough, it will come to the fore as we begin to read a little bit more. So what I want to do is just jump in, and I'm going to read you the entire first letter. We've got two weeks. We'll see how far we can get tonight, but we've got two weeks. And I'm mostly going to deal um, tonight with the first 15 out of the 31 letters, <laughs> and I, uh, with one exception that you'll see in a minute. Uh, and I'm not going to exactly take them in order, but I'm going to try to group together these letters to bring out some of the themes. The thing about, uh, as I realized when I was putting together this talk the last couple of weeks, is that You can't, I mean, reading Lewis himself is better than anything you can say about him. So I humbly acknowledge that if you want to just open up your book and read him, then you'd probably be spending your time better. But let's just try to assemble a couple of themes tonight together, and then next week I'll I'll get into some other things. I'm sad to say for those of you who came for these sort of things, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll will be next week. They will not be tonight. (laughs) Um, Those are the easy temptations. We're going to try to deal with the more complex background and some of the other things that we need to do first. But I want to do three main themes tonight, okay? It's always good to talk in Trinitarian terms in a Catholic audience. First, I want to deal with the deep nature of evil, perhaps a a nature that's more mysterious than the mystery of the good, and you'll see what that, that is in a minute. The second thing I want to do is look at the very subtle ways that Christians can be tempted, even in their very lives, in trying to live their very lives as Christians. Because I think that Lewis is absolutely brilliant and perhaps unique among modern apologists in warning Christians about some of the dangers that the devil can try to bring into our lives. In groups like this, we try to live a specially Catholic and Christian life. And usually, what uh, the, um, the the subtlety is is the devil tries to to encourage us to per, to pursue an unreal spirituality. Spirituality is a book that is, is a word that we all know is a, is a slippery word, and Lewis is very worried that without dogmatic truths to balance it off, it can you know, very quickly get into some get into the weeds. So that's number two. And Number three is I want to look at finally, in in our conclusion for tonight, uh, some of the ways that Lewis sees for us to recover from some of the inevitable spiritual failures or downturns that we have. So we'll end on a slightly optimistic note before we go home, but then we can come back. And by the end of these two sessions, I'm I'm going to try to sum up this whole thing, because there's a a way in which these letters are a, a, a kind of divine comedy in their own way. They're humorous. But they lead, in the end, to a kind of beatific vision. The devils, by the way, are always trying to produce what they call the miserific vision, which is something that Lewis <laughs> invented. But I, I think you'll be, be quite taken when we've come to the end and you see what Lewis's beatific vision is like. I'm going to you, read you now letter one. So remember, this is Screw Screwtape, the, 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 the senior uh, devil and head of a department in hell writing to Wormwood, his novice nephew, who's got to learn how to, how to deal with human beings. This is going to take a little bit, but just bear with me, because I think it's worth reading one of these letters just straight through. Okay. My dear Wormwood, I know what you say about guiding our patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friends, but are you, are you not being a trifle naïve? It sounds as if you supposed that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so had, it been, had he lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing along together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless, jargon, Not argument is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong, stark, courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. He can argue too. Whereas in really practical propaganda of the kind I am suggesting he has been shown for centuries to be greatly the inferior of our father below. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason, and once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life, and don't let him ask what he means by real. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemy, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum, One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch." The enemy presumably made the counter-suggestion. You know how you could never quite hear what he says to them? That this was more important than lunch. At least I think that must have been his line for when I said, quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of the morning. The patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind, he was already halfway to the door. And it was in the street that the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going by, and before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten him in, uh, into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with books, a healthy dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the, and the newsboy, was enough to show him that all sort of thing just couldn't be true. He knew he'd have a narrow escape, and later in later years was fond of talking about that art- inarticulate sense for actuality, which is our ultimate safeguard against the aberrations of mere logic. He is now safe in our father's house. You begin to see the point? Thanks to processes which we set at work in them centuries ago, they find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. Keep pressing home on him the ordinariness of things. Above all, do not attempt to use science. I mean the real sciences, as a defense against Christianity. They will positively encourage him to think about realities he can't touch and see. There have been some sad cases among the modern physicists. If he must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Sorry if there's anybody who's in there. (laughs) If he must dabble in science, keep him on economics and sociology. Don't let him get away from that invaluable real life. But the best of all is to let him read no science, but to give him a grand, a general idea that he knows it all and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember you are there to fuddle him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was our job to teach. Now, this, of course, is all great fun. And there's much that's quite familiar, of course, to us here as well. The devil is a great genius at offering commonplaces that present a kind of iron door, you know, that blocks the way against all allegedly useless speculations as those are found in philosophy and theology. I have one of my philosophy students here today, so I have to be careful what I say about philosophy today. In one way, uh, this sort of thing is what what, uh, Pope Benedict has called the dictatorship of relativism, right, That, that... We don't get down to actual truths. But it's important to point out what Benedict says there too. It's really a dictatorship. There's a kind of an authoritarianism here that that tells us don't look into that. And sometimes it doesn't have to explicitly tell us don't look into that. As Lewis is suggesting in that brilliant first letter, you create an atmosphere. You don't get into an, an argument. One of the very frustrating things, of course, for those of us who want to be knowledgeable about Catholicism so we can bring Those truths into the world is that lots of people have stopped arguing. I remember when I first um, started to get into what you might call public Catholicism 30 years ago, that pro-abortion people would still argue about why it was okay to have an abortion. And sometimes, in, in, in the mid, sometime in the mid 80s, the argument shifted, and they just said, "Look, I don't believe that. You do believe it, and you know, in the good American way, we're supposed to just forget if you're killing people, babies in the womb, or." people in nursing homes or whatever. Um, Very much what Lewis was was talking about here. So this is a clever way to deny the existence of God without even having to pervert our powers, our our powers of intellect and will. All you do is suggest that intelligent people, informed people, people of a certain sophistication in a a modern, uh, developed society, just don't don't go down certain paths. Um, we, We stay with ordinary life. Now, I want to do something a little bit odd at this point. Before we go further, I want to linger a little bit on the whole question of a devil tempting a human being. Now, many of of you may think of this as not problematic. Obviously, if we stepped outside of a Catholic church, and maybe even to some, sadly, in, inside some Catholic churches, um, some people might think that this is, I don't know what, mythological or... Maybe even somehow neurotic to think about actually uh, evil spiritual beings tempting people. And I think it's worth accepting the challenge of how odd from a modern kind of ordinary life point of view this thing is. And I think it even goes deeper than that. And I want to bring this up because I think Catholics need to themselves begin to explore some of the philosophical and theological problems um, so that we're ready to talk about these among ourselves, first of all, but then also in the world as a whole. And one of the things that um, I think Lewis is particularly good on, and one of his friends once said about him that when he, he finally converted, he was the most thoroughly converted man that he'd ever met. He was one of these guys who, as he talks about, when in the past when people thought something had been proved philosophically, they, they actually were ready to change their lives. Lewis detects here and elsewhere, that it's very mysterious the way evil entered into the world. I want to be precise about this. We know from our theological studies that there are mysteries of the faith that exceed reason. And there you know, you know what these are. There are the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and one, how does that work? The incarnation, the real presence. These are not things that can be exhaustively explained by reason. And a mystery, to be clear, is not a problem. A mystery by its nature cannot be solved. It cannot be solved by better theology or better theologians or by longer research. A a mystery is what it is in its very nature. It cannot be rationally explicated because as St. Thomas says, you know there are things in the faith that we could not have reasoned to on our own. We, we may be able to reason to the fact that God exists, but we did not know until it was revealed to us that He was a Trinity, a three-in-one Trinity. That, he, that God could be incarnate in Jesus, that the real presence could exist in the Eucharist, and, and many more. But I would add about this that that evil is perhaps even more mysterious than these mysteries. If, you know at the, the depth that we're dealing with, this is a hard thing to, to, to figure out. Um, it, it's more mysterious because we can understand in a way that the good that exists exceeds us, right? But what shall we say about the fact that angels could fall? Angels have a direct intuition in God. Their knowledge is, is intuitive in God. How can this be? You know, they saw all goodness and and uh, all happiness and turned away from it. And also part of this mystery is how does evil enter our world? Now, yeah, you know, we know from the first pages of the Bible that the devil comes along and tempts Eve. She eats the apple, gives it to Adam. This is this is very complex, very very compact, and at the same time very complex. How in the world does evil enter into a good creation when God creates a creation that is satisfying to us and is where he intends us to be, and it's where we are best when we are in that creation? Now, Lewis himself must have felt that this was a, a, a question that needed to be addressed because in another book, Perilandra, have any of you read Perilandra? It's in the Space Trilogy. It's the middle, it's the middle of the, the, the three. The, Perilandra is Venus. And there's the planet Venus. And Paralandra is a planet on which the fall has not occurred. Now, there are so far only two human-like beings on Paralandra, and they have not fallen. There's a man and a woman, an an Adam and an Eve on Paralandra, on on Venus. And the story largely revolves around how John Ransom, who's a professor at Oxford and had in an earlier book been on Mars and found out that we're the silent planet. That was the name of the, the first volume, Out of the Silent Planet. We're the silent planet because after the fall, a kind of quarantine, a spiritual quarantine was placed around the Earth. So he goes up into the heavens and he finds all these places where the fall has not occurred. And he gets to Perilandra, his arch nemesis from the earlier book, uh, by Professor Watson, a scientist, has been possessed by the devil, and he's trying to make the perilandrin Eve fall. And how does he do this? Well, he can't do it by using the physical goods that are in Venus, because she already knows that those are good, and she tells him over and over again that the order, he says, well, you know, why don't you want to do that?" Well, because the order in which maladrill, which means God, maladrill presents the goods to us, is the right order. And if we don't get that good, we'll get this good. And, the, and he wishes for that, and I, you know, I love him, and I want to follow his, his way. So the devil doesn't know what to do, except he begins to put in the, the back of her mind, and again, we're talking about an atmosphere now, not an argument, as, as Lewis was saying in that first letter. He begins to put the, in the back of her mind the image of these great women who have stepped out on their own and defied all sorts of odds for the good of others, too. You know, for the good of their children or their husbands or someone else. And she's puzzled by this. She says, well, you know, how can I step out of the good that maladrill, that God wants for us? And the devil says, oh, he says, you know, he wants you to do this. He wants you to be free and to, to choose things on your own, which is true, by the way, of course, right? The devil has to, he can only tempt us through a good. He wants us to, to be good and independent and choose on our own, but to choose the things that he has, has said are, are good and the order of those goods. So the devil has to just try to introduce this idea that it's somehow vaguely God wants us to step out from his his tutelage and become something different and ultimately this fails because the woman is just, she kind of laughs it all off and, and then Ransom uh, is able to protect her by actually de- destroying the body of this, uh, of this possessed person. But Lewis knew that this is a difficult question to deal with. And as much as we're amused by that temptation, it's hard at the deepest theological and even psychological level to know why it is that instead of remaining in the original order, in the original goodness that God created, we ultimately end up in in the world, fallen world that we have. St. Augustine in the Confessions and elsewhere talks about what he calls the mysterium iniquitatis, mystery of evil. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a way in which maybe that is even a more puzzling thing for us than the mystery of good uh, as created beings. Okay, There are two things here that I think go to the heart of understanding what Lewis is about. Okay, In one, I want to say again, we can only be tempted by real goods. That evil has to present itself under the aspect of good to attract us. Evil, per se, w- would revolt us and I mentioned the the shooter in Norway the other day. Why did he do this? He thought he was... He he talked himself into, or maybe the devil talked him into, believing that by killing children and others, he was actually saving Western civilization. Now, whether it's a crazy or it's a diabolical view, you see that it's only under the aspect of good that we can be tempted at all. And the other thing I I want to mention is that we have to constantly keep in, in mind how pervasive, as much as we laugh about the devil in in, in this book, how pervasive and heavy evil really is in the world to the point that God himself had to become man, be crucified, and resurrected. And if we think that evil is just sort of an amusing byway or or, uh, uh, mistake that we made, we're going to miss the deep things that are at stake, even in the midst of the humor that that Lewis presents us with. So that's just sort of a a, uh, a slight byway, but I, I I thought it was worth um, doing that. Now um, I want to read some more now to you of Letter Two this time, because um, we'll start to see how these demonic calls can be very very subtle. And one of the surprising things in these early letters in Screw Tape is that Lewis again, by this indirect way of of, of speaking as a tempter, warns Christians about one of the ways in which we can instantly go astray, even in our very Christianity, because of our own pride and our own misapprehension of what the good of the church is going to be. So let me just read this passage. This is not the whole letter. This is just part of one of the letters. Let me just read um, a couple paragraphs to you and you'll see what I mean. My dear Warmwood, one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out um, through all time and space and rooted in eternity, eternity, terrible as army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempers uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham gothic erection on the new building's estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather uh, an oily expression on his face bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics. Mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and he looks around him, he sees just the selection of his neighbors whom he had hitherto avoided. He want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors. Make his mind flick to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's God side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow somehow be ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals, armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though of course unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords." I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much easier. All you then have to do is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, Why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is Wormwood. It is. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have real humility yet. What he says even on his knees about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very federal, favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted. And he thinks that he is shown great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Now, I don't know how much this actually occurs in uh, converts, or even in people who have been in churches for a long time, but I, I believe Lewis is quite insightful here, and perhaps because he came in as a convert, as an adult convert in his 30s, I think he began to notice this, maybe about himself, maybe about other Christians. But there's an insight here that I don't think we should neglect, that in fact we know that that this sort of thing, that, that again, this vagueness in the back of our minds that is supposed to yield ultimately to that. Hellish clarity is something to, be, to guard against. And I want to just read one more passage. This is from letter seven. Uh, because as someone who's lived in Washington for 30 years, I, I believe I've paid my debt to society and I can be released back into the community <laughs> at this point. Um, I find this a particular uh, temptation among people I've known, and perhaps in myself as well. He talks about how important it is to make Christians believe that they are in a special group. Lewis is very good, by the way, on what he calls the inner ring. He's got an essay about the inner ring. Which which is, is any group of people who get together and think they are somehow superior to others um, runs a certain number of risks. And let me just read this one paragraph to you and see if this strikes you as a kind of um, particularly relevant passage for those of us who live in Washington. Remember, this is in World War II when you could die, and they're, they're going back and forth in letter seven. Should I try to make him a pacifist? Should I try to make him an extreme patriot? Which will lead best to his damnation? And here's what uh, Screwtape tells Wormwood. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the pacifism or the patriotism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war or pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience, Once you have made the world an end, and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference and it makes uh, uh, what kind of world the end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on these terms, the more securely ours, I could show you a pretty cageful Something to think about in the Washington area well, um, I want to go on to the second point about unreal religious life I know we have um, okay this is the second theme okay we've, we've been going over the, the the deep part of the you know what does it mean to be tempted what, what what kind of things are out there and what sorts of things in particular should a Christian worry about Lewis um, was had, had a nose for what he, he called unreal spirituality and I, I've talked about this a little bit so far, but the kind of thing that takes us out of our real concrete duties and our responsibilities and projects us in some kind of unreal you know, idea of, of what the spiritual life ought to be, it's, which somehow you know, doesn't involve not yelling at your wife or your kids or you know, whatever it is in the course of a day. Um, in this unreal religious life, he looks specifically now at this young man who's still living at home with his mother during, the, uh, during the, the, uh, the Blitz. And of course, a young man living at home with his, his, his widowed mother presents all sorts of opportunities for a devil to make mischief. And what, um, what Screwtape keeps telling his, his, uh, his nephew is, get him not to see that his Christianity is supposed to change the way he relates to his mother. That let let him pray for her, and you know, two seconds later have a have a quarrel with her, as if he wasn't praying for the concrete person who's really there. There's a poem of Chesterton's called the um, called the World State, which ends the villas and the chapels. This is sort of the same sort of thing where people they value these these large um, causes and they don't look around them at the kinds of things they need to do for the people who are immediately. Uh, they're they're called upon to interact with. So he he talks about um, the the world state, and he says about it, the villas and the chapels where I learned with little labor, the way to love my fellow man and hate my next door neighbor. I have to tell you, again, after living 30 years in Washington, I've seen this happen quite often, um, that that, people who are um, after social justice and all sorts of other things can't seem to find a way to be concretely there for the, the people who are most, they're most intimately involved with. And that tells you that there's something wrong. There's a priest uh, who, I've know, who I know who's been a priest for 25 years, and he always says to me that the talk doesn't mean anything, but the action is what really matters. And the action of a Christian in, in interaction with others in the immediate context is perhaps um, more important than anything. One other temptation that he he places great emphasis on, that I think is worth our our attention um, here tonight, is the way that the world subtly tries to insinuate itself into the ways we think. Later in these first letters, this young man meets a a middle-aged married couple who are rich, intelligent, well-educated. They go to plays, they go to theater, they're exactly the kind of, of you know moderately sophisticated people that it's great fun to be with, actually. And um, Screwtape and um, Wormwood make sure that they, they play, again, on this vague sense of what's right, of what's the kind of thing that you do in public. And, and they're able to go back and forth and, and make it appear as if the man, when he's being tempted... To be with him, he isn't really. He, he justifies to himself he isn't really being unfaithful to his Christianity. He's just not being puritanical. You know, he's trying to engage the, this couple, who are a great deal of fun, and you know, fun and, and joy are part of what Lewis has said elsewhere are are, are part of the Christian life. So, um, Screw Tape. He has a whole, whole taxonomy of humor. He doesn't like a lot of humor, by the way, because of the reasons we talked about at the beginning. He doesn't like joy. He doesn't like sort of innocent humor. What he likes is flippancy, he says. You know, sort of this assumption that it's all, you know, it's these big questions. Don't, they've been around for a long time. No one can solve them. And flippancy is that, you know, we kind of know about that. Nobody can really do that. Oh, yeah, you know, you're going to engage in the spiritual life or whatever. It kind of reminds me of the Washington Post style section. I have to... I have to say. <laughs> And, and, and well, to be fair, it's also movies tell. We see all this stuff all around us, right? That there's a kind of a flippancy. I'm hip. I know about all this stuff, you know. And you don't have to make an argument. You just mock it and and make it appear to just be déclassé. Screwtape concludes this part with his nephew, and he says the key here is to slowly reorient the soul to a kind of irony and indifference that aren't noticed until they've been imbibed. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Just a very slow subsiding. Well, I want to come to an end and and, and stay in in time here. The third thing is, how do we recover from this? And um, this is in the middle of the book. So, the, the young man has had a falling off with his hip couple. And he doesn't feel like himself. He knows he's gone off somehow. He doesn't know what to do. And Screwtape is outraged because Wormwood allowed him to read a book. Not a, a book that is popular, but a book that he authentically enjoys. And then the, the, man, the young man takes a walk and he takes a walk through the woods out to an old mill and has tea, and his spirit sort of becomes calm in nature. And um, Screwtape says, you, you've made this horrible mistake. You've allowed him to have two real pleasures. Now remember what I said at the beginning. Pleasures can be a temptation. But in a way that Lewis, I, I think, brings forward with great insight, Real pleasures in the world, the Catholic sun with a red wine, etc., you know, the real pleasures in the world that the God intended to be here when we take them the right way are partly how we recover from the perverted and unsatisfying pleasures and goods of the world that the devil tries to install in us that don't accord with our nature, that we know don't make us, make, make us happy. So the, so the devil says here... Um, and, and I have to say, I, I'm, I'm a little cautious about presenting this, because I, I think Lewis understands what he's about. But obviously, this could be misused. What he's, sa- he's saying again is, these human beings are not Manichaeans. They don't believe, they're, they're not just two parts of good and evil. They're not Gnostics who, who live in a, a kind of a um, spiritual realm, and they, so that they should be nervous about pleasure. And the tempter says truly, the characteristics of pains and pleasures is that they are unmistakably real. Remember I was saying, you know, the devil likes to tempt us to unreal spiritual. They are unmistakably real. And therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone of reality. It's a very different view than I think we usually hear. And I think Lewis makes a good case for this uh, in ways that I hope to develop the next, next week when we come together. And Screwtapes continues here. The deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point with which the enemy, meaning God again, has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world, or convention, or fashion, for a human being's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. He's the devil's still speaking, I'm not saying this. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not an actual sin, even if it is something quite trivial, such as fondness for county cricket, or collecting stamps, or drinking cocoa. Such things I grant you have nothing of virtue in them, but there is a sort of innocence and humility and self-forgetfulness about them which I distrust. The man who truly and disinterestedly enjoys any one thing in the world for its own sake and without caring two pence what other people say about it is by that very fact forearmed against some of our subtlest modes of attack. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or food or books he really likes in favor of the best people, the right food, the important books. Now, again, I want to say there are admittedly dangers here, it, it, improperly understood. There can be a folding in on ourselves and these allegedly harmless pleasure, pleasures. I think of some of the video games. I don't particularly know a lot about this, so maybe I'm, I'm talking out of school. But I, you know, people get closed in on things that they innocently enjoy that can then not be so innocent. But I also think that there is something truly wise here in Lewis that not only brings us back from our temporary dips in the spiritual life. How many of us have seriously considered Lewis's point that the deepest, I'm quoting again, the deepest likings and impulses of any man are the raw material, the starting point which the enemy has furnished him? Now, we may misjudge and misuse the starting point in countless ways, and we certainly underestimate the length and arduousness of the journey that we all have to undertake, whether we will or no, uh, in the course of our life. But this also might be a kind of Ariadne's thread that we can follow and begin to take us back to the real life, the one obscured by sin and weakness, the one that was there at the beginning and waits for us at the end, and that we can only glimpse in the interludes between one deviation from the path and another. And it's the endless need to regain our footing and take another step forward. I think this is a bold assertion by Lewis, one that I I don't believe I've seen stated this strongly and and perhaps strikingly in any other writer. And I hope to show you in greater detail and depth what he means in our next session. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr.
0: Royal. Hi, I'm Thomas. Uh, You'd mentioned the word polemical twice in reference to C.S. Lewis not being that way. Uh, my question is, would you consider the Snakebite Letters by Peter Craft as being polemical? Um,
1: you know, I read those some years ago, and I don't have a clear picture of them in my mind. What I meant by that polemical is not that Lewis is not making arguments, because he is making a lot of arguments, and he is attacking a lot of things that need to be attacked, I believe. But the the lack of polemics is internal to Christianity, that what he wants to do is to lay out at a moment in the 1940s when, you know, Europe is blowing up, America is being drawn in into the World War, um, what he wants to do is, is lay out just so people understand what Christianity is. It's it's a work that, that Peter Kraft and others have been doing in the contemporary situation, but I think it was a little easier to do it then because there still was a, a more residual sense of what Christianity is. Since the 1960s, Christianity means virtually anything. And um, I'm not even sure that polemical is the the right way to go at it there. I've read Krepp's ecumenical jihad, by the way, which my wife gave me knowing that I would like it. Thank
0: you. Um, Do you think that there's anything in screw tape letters that would be against Catholicism or be a danger to Catholicism? I mean, any of his arguments or anything that he attacks that might be anti-Catholic?
1: I think not. I think not. In fact, I was surprised when I read through the letters. I've read them many times, but when I read through the letters, particularly for this group, I thought somebody might want to know exactly that. And um, I'll just say this because I don't want to spoil the, the end of the story next week. He even leaves open the possibility of purgatory, which let me tell you, a Protestant from Belfast, even if he's a sophisticated professor at Oxford, that's a big concession for
0: do you think there's any truth to a, a commentary I had read that he, uh, that C.S. Lewis could not write anything like this again? Was it uh, it caused him angst, or was he too close to the devil? Or do you have any comment or insights uh, about his? There's this commentary I had read was that he couldn't write anything like that again, and would it See, be He said
1: that himself. Yeah, he, he said, that as when he finished the Screw Tape letters, that he felt a spiritual cramp, actually having to present all this material from the the side of the devil. But thank God that he could last it out through the thirty-one, because as I as I mentioned, it's very clever, and it really shows you that. Uh, We'll get into this next week, but he, he you can see in the way he presents this that people do certain things that are wrong toward one another. And you can have a naturalistic explanation for it or you can have a spiritual explanation for it, but the fact of it and, and seeing it from the other side gives you kind of an entree into the spiritual understanding of it. But I think if you just presented it straight out, most people, even maybe in the 40s, would have found it hard to, to accept. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, it's a, a great um, intellectual and probably spiritual strain to write a text like this, um, to always be in that persona. He did, he did this in, I think, 31 consecutive weeks for a paper that still exists in England called The Guardian. It's not The Manchester Guardian, which is a left-wing secular paper. It's a church paper called The Guardian for 31 consecutive weeks. They're about they're column-length, and, and they're, they're quite good. But it must have hurt, because yeah, it was over a long period. You mentioned wanting to develop the theme of uh, recovery from spiritual lapses. Now, uh, they want to keep us, or Screwtape wants to keep the, the law of undulation from us. How should we as laymen interpret it? Yeah, I had this in my text, but since we were going a little long, I didn't actually talk about the law of undulation. One of the things that Screwtape says to his, uh, his nephew is, human beings, because we, we are in- embodied, we go up and down. You know, you're tired some days, the baby got up in the middle of the night, you had to work late the night before. So the, the, the fact that we are a spirit combined with an animal nature means that we're going to have these ups and downs. And a lot of the interpretation that we put on our own behavior and attitude, he says we neglect the fact that we're going to have this physical undulation. So, it's important for us to, to recognize that. Again, I, I, I remember I kept emphasizing that Lewis believes that we must take the material world seriously as creation. And if we don't recognize that, we're going to try to be, you know, it's, it's technically in theology called angelism. You know, you try to be a, an angel, and usually, as the saying goes, it turns you into a devil to try to, be, to, to try to be an angel. But this law of undulation is just you're going to go up and down. And, of course, the thing in the spiritual life is to at least keep trying to make the highs higher and keep the lows from going quite as low as they were. And, and you know, we all make slow progress and occasionally God gives, has mercy on us and gives us some special graces. But I'm glad you brought this up because I'll try to bring that up uh, next week again because it's, it's worth exploring that in a, in, in a fuller way. Hi. Uh, do you know of any literary works that uh, approach this from the opposite perspective of perhaps a senior angel writing to a guardian angel uh, anything of that sort? And, or Do you see any need or place for a sort of work like that? Well I, I think the great tradition of spiritual writing, um, you can think of uh, St. Catherine of Siena, uh, St. Francis de Sales, there's no fictional account of angels you know, whispering, you know, guardian, maybe that's, hey, that's a good idea. The, <laughs> the guardian angel letters. <laughs> yeah. um, but, see, what he does is he turns around the, the usual sort of spiritual writing that you get in, in Francis de Sales or in, you know, any number of other writers, Cardinal Newman and others. But, yeah, that would be, uh, the, you know, it's harder to portray, people, artists have often said this, it's harder to portray good than evil. And uh, I've written a book on Dante. I always like to tell people that two-thirds of the divine comedy is either about sin or getting over sin. (laughs) And it's only when you're two-thirds of the way, even a little more than two-thirds of the way, that you can really start to do the angelic sort of things. it's very hard. And and you've got to work hard to get to that point. But Lewis himself has some things about angels who are called eldils in uh, the space trilogy. And uh, it's very clever, and and, from a literary standpoint, very inventive.
0: Dr. Rowe, you mentioned Chesterton, and could you comment at all about Chesterton's influence on C.S. Lewis or vice versa?
1: Well, Chesterton's the older man, and uh, Chesterton dies in what, 33? 33, so Lewis does not become a Christian until about 1930, 1931. You know, I, t- I wanted to read this one passage to you. Well, anyway, he, he says it was in 1929 that he had thought his way into theism again. And little by little, it was getting to the point, it was really an unwelcome process. And he said, finally, I was alone in my room at Magdalen uh, College in Oxford, and I knelt and prayed and admitted that God was God. And then it took a while for him to become a Christian. But. Uh, Chesterton has such an enormous influence on, on all these writers. He, he's, just, he's brilliant like Lewis, he's funny like Lewis, profound in, in, in sort of the, the, the instinctive philosophical and theological truths that he's able to, to draw. out, And then he's able to, to embody them in these literary works. So I think it, it's very much in the back of his mind. He's a great admirer of Chesterton's.
0: Um, would you uh, see any Dainer's da- tendency towards a certain uh, hiatism in, in regards to the import of uh, political uh, choice for, 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 for Christians as the, in, the, in, in Chesterton's uh, in, uh, sorry, C.S. Lewis's worldview as as by the, the text you cite in which he seems to imply it's, re- it's, it's relatively indifferent towards one's salvation uh uh, One's view towards the war, for example.
1: Yeah, he see, what he's trying to do there is something that, particularly in this, in this greater Washington area, we probably understand better than most people. And that is that the cause starts out being, it's a, in that passage I said, the cause starts out being part of your religious belief. And then little by little, the cause starts to absorb the religion. You know, I mean, you can think of certain forms of liberation theology or. You know, people assume that um, I don't know. You know, one political party or another is the bearer of actual Christianity. You know, if you know what politicians are like, it's a pretty implausible thing. But <laughs> somehow the somehow the illusion continues to crop up. You know, that politics is is holy or, or something. I don't know. Uh, democratic politics, in particular. So I mean, what you're, you're, you're what you're trying to lift up there is, is it's an, a very important point that we. Remember that line where he says, make the world the ends and the faith the means. That's the key. Thank that's, you. that's the key for a devil. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much, okay. Dr.
1: Royal. Good.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.